believe God's got something special for us. Amen. Let's just do this. Lift up your hands. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we have to be in this place. Thank you for this wonderful church, this amazing worship team and band, and all these amazing volunteers who've just put their hearts on the line to serve these wonderful people here at Linked Up Church. And Father, I thank you that before the foundation of the world, you knew that we'd be here today. And you set us up for a divine connection. A divine collision, Lord, for this word you have for me today to impact the hearts and lives of every single person that's in this place today. So we thank you for those that are present, those that are online, connected as well. And we give all honor to you for anything good that happens. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, before you're seated, turn around and high-five two or three people. Tell them you're in the right place today. I believe that I am on an assignment. You know, though this is my best friend in the world, anytime he'd ask me to come, I'd be willing to come. But I'm here today because he prayed for who was supposed to be here this weekend. And we've had an amazing time spending time with you all this weekend. And we prayed as to whether or not we were supposed to be here for this specific time. And I had peace and they had peace. So this is a divine assignment. And the way it works with God is anytime God's got you on a divine assignment like this, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And he'll show us things to come. So God will use a time like this to break something off of you that the enemy's trying to put on you. Or he'll use a time like this to prepare you so that when the enemy comes in, then like a flood, God will already have raised up a standard against him. And so what's on my heart to share today is, is, is something that I want to just entitle, Choose Joy. Choose Joy. The Bible is filled with these phrases that constantly teach us or instruct us to choose joy. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. In other words, what God was saying is rejoice. The word rejoice means act like it's joy. Demonstrate joy. Rejoice in the Lord all the time. That means no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what we're going through, rejoice in the Lord always. And he said, just in case you didn't understand what I said, again I say rejoice. The Bible told us in James chapter 1 to count it all joy. When you fall into different types of temptations, tests or trials, which means when you get a bad doctor's report, instead of giving in and staying in the house and being discouraged for the next 10 days, the Bible says figure out a way to count that thing joy. Count it all joy. The Bible says in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. Which means when we get over into God's presence, just like we did a few moments ago, and as we'll do, I'm sure, before this service is out, the Bible says that's where your joy tank gets filled up. The Bible also goes on to say in the book of Nehemiah that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Which means if I want to stay strong, if I want to be able to stand up against the, the obstacles and the tests and trials that come against me, then I cannot afford to give away my joy. In fact, I think it was Jerry Savelle that wrote a book years ago that says if the devil can't keep your joy, can't steal your joy, he can't keep your goods. Which means if I'm going to hang on to my healing and hang on to my sanity, then I've got to hang on to my joy. I believe that we're living in a time right now, and a lot of it is because of what, what's happening on social media and the access we have to so many di different pieces of information and, and seeing what's going on in somebody else's life. Can I just leave you with a nugget right here? Don't ever allow yourself when you're on social media to compare your real life with somebody else's highlight reel. You do realize that when you look at your friend's Instagram account, if you follow me on Instagram, can I just, I'm not saying it's not true, but it's not the whole picture. If you follow me on Instagram, can I just tell you that that's not my whole story. I'm not, I'm not about to put on there the time that April and I got into a fight, an argument, 
on the way to Atlanta to come and minister to your singles and married folks? What am I saying? When we look at things on social media, because what I'm talking about today, a lot of what causes this thing that we're going to talk about called depression, it happens because we end up comparing our lives to other people's lives. No matter where you are in life, whether it's exactly where you want to be, kind of where you want to be, or not exactly where you want to be, thank God you're alive to even have an opinion right now. And so in this time that we're living right now, we're in a place where there's a real uptick in depression and mental illness in our society, and we're even seeing it ex being experienced by children and teenagers. The CDC records, I believe, that there's roughly 300 million people right now that are battling some form of depression. When we talk about depression, what we're talking about is, is this definition I want to give you. It's a mood disorder that is characterized by anhedonia. Anhedonia is the inability to experience pleasure any longer. In other words, things that used to bring me pleasure, things I used to get a kick out of, things that used to put a smile on my face, things that used to make me get excited to jump up on a Saturday morning, those things no longer bring me pleasure. It's characterized by anhedonia, extreme sadness, poor concentration, sleep problems, loss of appetite, and feelings of guilt, helplessness, and hopelessness. And if I were to ask you, do any of those characteristics describe you or where you've been in the last year or so, probably everybody in here could identify with at least one or two of those. The problem is when several of them start to gang up on you, the doctors have determined that to be this term that they've labeled depression. Now, I want to put this out there up front. Thank God they've given it a name, depression, but we know a name that is above every other name. And I promise you, there's some folks in here going to walk free today. There's some folks that are absolutely going to walk free. And in fact, I'm going, to, I'm going to declare it up front. I break the power of that lion spirit of depression or suicide off of your mind, your will, and your emotions. And I am launching you into the fullness of what God has for your life. Now, there's a word that God has spoken over our church in Jacksonville. And, and I mean, we're, we're the best of friends. So I believe if he spoke it over our church, it, I, I mean, yeah, our church is our best friends. So if he's spoken over our church, I declare this word is for you too. And the word is simply this. There's a wind at our back this year. So if you've been struggling with, your, with a depressive mood because it feels like the wind has been at your face and you've been fighting to get uphill, can I tell you that there's been a shift in the winds? In fact, there's a wind advisory that says the wind has shifted now. And that wind that was at your face is now at your back pushing you forward. And so understand that just because things haven't worked out up until now does not mean that it's not going to work out as you go forward. But we need to understand that even in the church, even folks that have the Holy Spirit that are fully committed to Jesus Christ, we still have to deal with this thing called depression that will try to creep upon us to make us feel like life is not as good as God really has made it to be. In fact, I want to give you this from Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus quoted this in Luke chapter 4 when he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Jesus is anointed to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for their ashes, to give them the oil of the anointing, the garment of praise for the purpose of getting rid of the spirit of heaviness. So they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. See, depression is not something that just popped up in our modern times. It's become more prevalent in our modern times. I think we're more susceptible to it in our modern times for some of the reasons I've already stated. But all the way back here in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah identified the same thing we've labeled depression. He labeled it a spirit of heaviness. And the Bible says that God has a prescription for the spirit of heaviness. He said, put on the garment of praise so that you can deal with that spirit of heaviness. Well, now, we got to recognize that even in the church world, that we've got to create an environment and atmosphere in our church. And I know this is the heart of your pastors, and I pray that their heart will be echoed in every one of you. Because what we don't want to do in church, we've had a tendency to do this in the past in church, where when we show up at church, somebody asks, how you doing? We feel compelled to say, I'm blessed and highly favored, empowered to prosper, anointed to win. I've never had a problem in my whole life because Jesus is my Lord. Well, thank God Jesus is my Lord. He's been my Lord for a long time now. But can I be honest with you? I still have some days where I don't quite feel myself. And I think one of the things that's important for us to do in our church environments is to set an atmosphere, watch this, where we let people know it's okay to not be okay. Which means we're going to make our faith confessions because you never get out of a rut as long as you're talking about the rut. But we got to have this mindset where it is okay, especially among friends, to be honest about where I am so the Lord can help me go where he intended for me to go. Come on, say amen, somebody. Well, now, we need to recognize that there's nobody that is immune to the potential for the spirit of heaviness to try to come upon us. Even the great prophet Elijah, after he was used by God on Mount Carmel to call down fire from heaven and, and kill the, the prophets of Baal, right after that, Jezebel sent a message to him that I'm going to have you killed by tomorrow this time. And if I don't, I expect God to do the same thing to me you did to these prophets. When I would have expected for Elijah to say, well, come on then with your little ugly self. You want some of this? I just killed 400 prophets. I call fire down from heaven. I'll call some fire down and burn you to a crisp as well. But instead, the Bible says Elijah took off and ran. Went and hid under juniper tree. And the Bible says he requested of God that he might die. This is how you know when depression kicks in. Because depression will have us saying stuff we don't really mean. He's under a tree saying, Lord, just, just go ahead and kill me. Well, we know he didn't want to die. Because if he wanted to die, he would stay back there where Jezebel was because she wanted to kill him. Come on, say amen, somebody. But the truth of the matter is, he was simply going through a season of depression. And what I want to give you today is I want to give you four keys to choosing joy. If we're going to get to this place where we choose joy, we're able to get rid of that spirit of heaviness, I want to give you four keys to doing so. Number one, make a commitment here. Don't do life alone. Don't do life alone. And that's why I want to take a moment right here to give a shout out to, to small groups. I really I want to give a shout out to all, all of your small groups. And, and I know some of you may be thinking, well, I, I love my church and uh, I love Pastor Gregory's preaching and Minister Trish's, Trish, uh, Pastor Trish's uh, teaching and preaching, but I don't know about those small groups. I'm not, I'm not into going into anybody else's house or even meeting at a restaurant or anything like that. But can I just tell you, I've been pastoring now as a senior pastor. It'll be 23 years this year I've been a senior pastor. 
And I can tell you, in all my years of pastoring, I am convinced with all my heart that we, we cannot, not will not, we cannot grow to the heights of where God wants us to grow if we don't ever get to the place where we start to live in community. Amen. Amen. It's not enough, hear me out, it's not enough just to come on Sunday and get these great messages and sing all these amazing songs and worship with your family and then leave out of here and go back to isolation or go back maybe to your family that doesn't believe like you believe. We need to be in community and we need to have this mindset that I cannot and I will not do life all by myself. Now, this is not even a George Davis idea. I wish I could take credit for it. But it was God who came up with this concept when he said it's not good for man to be alone. Now, you got to think about it. That was in the, in, the, in the book of Genesis before Adam ever sinned. So this wasn't, well, man has sinned and now he's weak and he needs some help, somebody else. Before Adam ever sinned and while Adam had a perfect relationship with God, God said he's got a perfect relationship with me, but that's not enough to sustain him the way I made him. He needs genuine, bona fide relationships, not just surface stuff, not just the stuff where you tell him all the good stuff but can't tell him anything bad about you. Can't tell him anything that hurts you or anything that you're tempted in. He says it's not good for man to be alone. In fact, I want to read a passage to you from the book of Ecclesiastes. One of my favorite passages here. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9 says, Two people are better off than one. For they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, then the other one can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone, watch this, is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back. Somebody shout back to back. Come on, somebody shout back to back. Two can stand back to back and conquer. Watch this. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. In other words, God didn't build us to be by ourselves. You know, one of the saddest stories that, I, that, that you'll ever come across is a, a story of this ship called the Andrea Gales. It's a fishing boat up the East Coast, thing in the Massachusetts area, that years ago, they, they, in fact, they made a movie after called The Perfect Storm. And I wrote a book years ago uh, called Passing the Test of Life, and the last chapter in my book is called The Perfect Storm. And it's called The Perfect Storm because sometimes in life, like, like in the movie, several storms will converge on your life at one time. And that's what happened to this professional fishing boat. They're out to sea fishing, and several storms converged on them at one time, so much so to where they were not able to navigate out of it, and unfortunately, the boat ended up capsizing, and the whole crew ended up, ended up passing away. But now, the thing that I want to point out is that when they finally found the boat, they noticed that the emergency locator beacon on the boat was switched in the off position. Now, I say that because I, I can imagine that while they're out there and these storms are hitting their life, and they're calling Mayday, Mayday, and they're wondering why the Coast Guard's not showing up. They're wondering why there's no helicopters, you know, showing up to rescue them. And it's likely because nobody really knew where they were. I wonder how many times in the church that we come to church and we say all the right things and praise the Lord and bless the Lord and I'm blessed and favored, but people don't really know where you are. Because our emergency locator beacon, the relationship piece that's supposed to be there, hasn't been switched on because we convinced ourselves I'm a private person. Well, even private people need love, too. Come on, say amen, somebody. We need relationships where we can stand back to back in our toughest moments to know that the person on my back has got my back. Your pastors have been that for us, man. We've been friends, again, for 28 years, and we've had times we've disagreed, haven't always seen eye to eye on everything, but through it all, man, we have been the best of friends. And you know, 
when somebody's a best friend because they're not just there when things are going great. We, we, we talk about, we laugh about how, how many times we've been at restaurants and we're fighting to see who can get the bill. I mean, we, we have one instance where we're, we're literally chasing back to the, where we end up in the kitchen. I'm saying, no, I got the bill. And he's saying, no, I got the bill. Well, I mean, how many know that when you got people that are with you in good times, that's great. But what we need is to know we got people that will be with us in tough times. And I remember when, uh, when, when, when Joel's mom passed away years ago, man. And uh, I got the call from him. And he's on the other line. He's barely even audible because he's, he's emotional about it. And all I can remember him saying is, she's, she's gone, G. She's gone. And I knew that we had been praying for mom. And so right away, I knew exactly what was going on. And within a matter of three hours, April and I had already booked a plane from Jacksonville. And we were at their front door here in Atlanta. Amen. And we weren't here needy. We were here. Do you need the grass mode? Do you need to go somebody to pick up groceries for you? Whatever you have need of, come on, a friend is there in tough times. When we've had instances like that over the years, we've been there for each other. Many of you may or may not know, but our, our oldest daughter, our oldest child is a daughter. She's 17. She'll be graduating in 90 days. <laughs> Graduating high school, man. And when she was born 17 years ago, we got a diagnosis five days after her birth that she was diagnosed with sickle cell disease. Well, April and I were both, you know, knew that we were both carriers of the trade. So we knew there was the medical potential, but we're people of faith. All right, so we're, we're in faith, believing that, well, as long as we're in faith, then she won't be diagnosed with this. Well, we were told five days after she was born, she was diagnosed with sickle cell disease. And I remember walking into the pediatrician's office, and the particular doctor that told me was just cold and blunt, started running down the list of what she won't be able to do and how bad her life's going to be and all the stuff to expect to happen and how poorly she'll probably do in school. And, and I'm standing there, I'm devastated. And so I remember leaving there, I was there by myself, and I didn't even call my wife. For, the first person I called was Joel Gregory. And I began to share with him, and I'm emotional on the phone. He let me get it all out. Then he turned around and did what a friend does, began to build me up. And began to tell me that he'll be here with me right in the middle of all this. I came home and told my wife. She and I went through the next few days and got ourselves together. And the only two people on planet Earth that we ever told about this diagnosis, other than Marilyn Hickey that I told many years later, the only other two people on planet Earth that knew about this was Joel and Patricia Gregory. That means that neither one of our parents knew Neither one of our siblings knew. Nobody else in our church knew. You say, well, why didn't you tell anybody else? Were you being prideful? No. I just knew there weren't very many other, other people that can get in faith with us and not end up feeling sorry for us. So we went for 14 and a half years. We took two years, and every single day, my wife and I took communion every day to get our minds right. And anytime we found ourselves in a tough spot, we had two people we could call. I'm talking about back to back. We had two people we could call on that understood what we were going through, would build us up. And for 14 and a half years, our daughter, watch this, never experienced one sign or symptom of sickle cell disease. So much so to where she didn't even know she had been diagnosed with the disease until we found out that bone marrow transplant was a curative measure. And we prayed about it and had peace that God was going to finish the miracle he had started by going through the bone marrow process. And so on the way to the doctor to start the workups for bone marrow is when we finally shared with her what the diagnosis was. And when we walked into the, the doctor's office, the doctor began trying to tell us all these things we could expect through bone marrow and how bad it was going to be. But we had a conviction in our heart that our God is big enough. Come on, somebody. 
And anytime I felt my mind trying to go tilt on it, I had two friends. We had two friends who would always speak life back into us, who bought a house, we believe, that had a basement set up just for us to be able to live in their basement. Because watch this, the doctors gave us three places that were the best choice for us to have the bone marrow transplant. We could have it done in Jacksonville, where we live, at Nemours Hospital. We could have it done in Vanderbilt at the hospital there in Tennessee. Or we could have it done in Emory Hospital here in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, it was a no-brainer for us. Our bestest friends in the world lived in Atlanta, Georgia, had just bought a house with a basement where we could hang out there, live there, have total access, and be able to get to the doctor's appointments like we needed to. We moved here to Atlanta, Georgia, and lived in their house for a month. Can I tell you, they took care of every expense we could possibly think of in order to make sure we could go through that process. Our daughter went through the bone marrow transplant, had high-dose chemotherapy, and never had one symptom or sign of the chemotherapy in her system. Came through it miraculously, and now the doctors have agreed with what we declared when she was first born. She no longer has sickle cell disease in her bloodstream. I need you to rejoice with me a little bit more than that. Come on. Our God is still a miracle-working God today. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that you're able to rejoice with us in our miracle, but I need you to catch, catch hold of this. That was a situation in life where had we been going through that by ourselves, I cannot tell you how many moments we hit that in and of themselves would have been devastating and could have taken us out if we didn't have friends that were standing back to back with us. And so many times we end up depressed, we end up ready to give up, we end up ready to throw in the towel, we end up in a suicidal place even because we haven't developed relationships with people that God put us in covenant with. Or we are in covenant with people, but we don't get close because we built all these walls to protect ourselves. Can I tell you that there are people that God will put in your life who are on a God-ordained mission to be there to be a a blessing to your life. Your pastors are people like that in your life. They don't want anything from you. They want to be a blessing to you. Which is why when God sends you to a church like this, you don't come and put your toes in the water. You dive in. Huh? And everything the church, if they, if they got classes on Wednesday night for the men, then get here, brothers. Come on, they got classes for single people, get here for that. They got services for married folks, get here for that. If they got a toe washing and a, a fingernail painting class, get here for all of that too. Whatever they got going on, thank God that he's put you in covenant with people. Come on, somebody. Where you don't have to live this life all by yourself. Second thing that we need, we got to change what we can change and then leave the rest to God. Change what you can change, and then leave the rest of it to God. Depression is fueled by this word called hopelessness. When you look at the news, that's all they're peddling today is hopelessness. Bad news, hopelessness. And if Satan can torment us with not being able to get results in our lives or magnify our disappointments, then he'll banish us to this prison of hopelessness. That's why if you find yourself in a posture, I know it's the beginning of the year, and we all made them New Year's resolutions. And I'm going to lose weight this year. Anybody in that posture, don't, don't raise your hand. Anybody in that position where you, you're, you're on your seventh time trying to lose weight? Mm, come on, help me out, somebody. You know what I'm talking about? Where you, you know, way, way back in the day, you tried the, the cabbage diet. And, well, you popped the pills and you injected yourself in the belly. And, huh? You started down that pathway of the keto diet. And after three days, you said, the devil is a liar. Come on, somebody. 
My wife described that to me. I said, oh, no, he not. I'll be fat then. That's all it is. <laughs> but if the enemy can get you focused in on something that's a disappointment, something that hasn't worked out, you're in the same financial situation. No, you confessed last year was going to be your year. Huh? Or you, you, you've had a relationship breakup. Or it seems like no matter how much you've worked on yourself as a single person, you haven't been able to find that right person. If the enemy can get you fixated on the thing that you have not been able to change by yourself, then the end result can end up being depression. I love what Isaiah said. It says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. That means we'll exchange strength with God. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk in what? Come on, they shall walk in what? They shall walk and not faint. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. For years, I didn't really understand what that meant, but the more I studied out eagles, I love eagles and lions, and, 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 I, and I, I study the habits and lifestyles of eagles and lions. And one of the things I've learned about the eagles is that when an eagle is in flight, they don't flap their wings much. In fact, eagles can, can, can go at speeds of 50 to 75 miles per hour at a height of up to 10,000 feet in the air, but they barely ever flap their wings. In fact, the way in which they get up to those high heights is what's called thermal updraft, these, these hot bursts of air. That the eagle learns how to catch that hot burst of air and let it go up higher. Then you wait on another one, hot burst of air that takes him up a little bit higher. And he'll be patient enough to let that hot air take him up to where he needs to be. When he gets up to altitude, the eagle learns how to just glide, learns how to soar. Can I just say that? In other words, the eagle has learned, watch this, how to go with the flow. Now contrast the eagle to the hummingbird. The hummingbird flaps his wings a lot. In fact, the hummingbird flaps his wings about 40 to 80 times per second. And in fact, when the hummingbird is in courtship, the hummingbird flaps his wings even more than that. So the hummingbird looks like this. <laughs> and if you say, you look cute in that dress, the hummingbird, oh my God. <laughs> In fact, the hummingbird flaps his wings so much that the hummingbird has got to eat 50 to 60 times a day to avoid starvation. In fact, if God wasn't so gracious to allow the hummingbird to lower his body temperature when it sleeps, the hummingbird would starve to death overnight. And I say that to say this, we got a lot of people in the church that are hummingbird Christians. Just flapping at everything. Getting worn out by everything. Getting bothered by everything. Trying to fix your grown kids. They're 35. And you still, instead of you saying they're 35, you call them 1,286 months. No, they're, they're way older than that. Time to let them go. Come on, time to cut them loose. Come on, you, I don't know where that came from. You getting worked up by stuff. Come on. You, you getting worked up about stuff that God didn't even cause you to fix. Hmm. You're getting worked up about who's in the president's office or who's in the governor's office. When at the end of the day, Jesus is still seated at the right hand of the throne. We've got too many hummingbird Christians. Romans 12, 16 says, do not be haughty, but readily, watch this, adjust yourself to people and to things. Adjust yourself is like cuss words to a controlling person. <laughs> to a type, I'm a type A personality. I really am. I got a certain way I want things done and I have a, a certain goal in mind 
And I don't mind working hard to accomplish what I want to accomplish. But sometimes your greatest strength can also be your greatest weakness. Because when you're a type A or type AAA personality, then sometimes we can end up trying to fix and control things and people even. And God never called us to try to fix and control. You say, ask me, ask me how I know because I, I lived that way for years, man. I have siblings that I, I'm, I'm a family guy. I'm a, I'm a sports guy, so I'm athlete by nature. So when I win, I don't want to win by myself. I want to win and have somebody to chest bump with, high five with, turn around and look, and we all cross the goal line together. And so for years, I was trying to drag my family across the goal line. I have siblings and cousins and that I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get them to get to the goal line because I've seen what God has done in my life, and it was wearing me out. And one day I had to come to this conclusion, hang on a second, I want them to win more than they want to win themselves. And I had to learn how to adjust myself and stop requiring that it has to be done my way, come on, in my timing, because I was taking on some hummingbird characteristics. John 14 says this, do not let your heart be troubled. Don't you let it be troubled. Then it says this, stop allowing yourself to be agitated and disturbed. Man, that's good. You stop letting yourself get agitated. Don't, don't tell me what they did. Stop letting it get the best of you. I don't, I don't want to hear about how everybody did you wrong. Stop letting it agitate you and disturb you. So many times we end up wasting time fighting a fight that God didn't tell us to fight. And we end up being too worn out to fight the battle that we really are supposed to be fighting. I have uh, uh, several younger siblings, but one of my younger siblings is five years younger than me. We grew up together, and uh, his name is Deshaun, and he's, he's a creative genius, man. Love him. But growing up five years younger in a single-parent home, the way it worked, and when mom wasn't around, I was just in charge. So I remember being in fifth grade, having to pick him up from kindergarten. We'd walk home together. And the thing about my brother, if, if you met him to this day, he still likes to talk. He's a talker, man. Talk trash. Talk, talk about what he's going to do. I remember playing Madden with him. I'm beating him 102 to 6. And he's talking about, oh, well, wait till the next play. <laughs> and growing up, man, he would always talk trash to older people. And I remember one time he's in kindergarten, and he's down the street talking trash to this eighth grader on our block. Now, the way it worked in my house, I don't know about yours, but my single-parent home, if my brother got in trouble into a fight... He could not get beat up, and I come in the house, and I'm clean. Because then I got to deal with mama. So my brother's down the street talking trash. He's kindergarten talking trash. It's eighth grade. And he's looking up at him. What you going to do to me? Anybody scared of you? Hit me if you want to. Then he would always end with these words. I'll get my brother. So one day, he's down the street selling wolf tickets, and a little boy must have popped him. He comes running home crying. Mama's not home yet, and I know I, I better go deal with it or at least get some scars on me before Mama gets home. So I go down the street, man, and I'm a little skinny kid, man. This kid in eighth grade. He's probably this tall, and I'm probably this tall in fifth grade. And I'm looking up at him like, man, what you doing messing with my brother, man? Don't nobody, don't nobody mess with my brother. Whole time I'm scared out of my wits. And so all I knew to do was to do the shoulder dance. Anybody know what the shoulder dance is? Huh? What you going to do then? What you going to do then? Huh? Don't push me again. Push me again and see what happens. I, okay, you push me again, but push me one more time, see what happens. <laughs> the whole time in my mind, I'm like, I, I hope you let me go and let me go home safely. 
And so one of those turns during the shoulder dance, I got this thought in my head, if this guy reaches out and hit me first, I'm going to be in trouble. So I knew enough to know I need to get the first lick in. So in one of those rounds of the shoulder dance, I, true story, I stepped back and with everything in me, with the power of Jesus Christ, I unloaded on him and pile hit him in his jaw. Now what I want to tell you, if I wasn't standing in this holy stage, what I'd like to tell you is that I stood over him and said, you bet not mess with him again. But the truth is, when I hit him, I turned around, I ran as fast as I could. <laughs> I don't even know if my brother was with me or still back there. <laughs> but we got to make sure we hang on to enough strength to fight the battles we're supposed to fight and not get worn out fighting battles that God didn't tell us to fight. Third thing that we've got to do. You ready for this? We got to clean up the stinking thinking. Clean up all the stinking thinking. The mind is always the battlefield. The difference between the guy that's first off the bench, the, the star player on the team in the NBA, and the guy that's number 12, the talent difference is not that huge a difference. You don't make it to the NBA and can't play basketball. The difference between the guy that becomes a perennial all-star and the guy that's at the end of the bench and never gets in the game most of the time is in the mind. And for us today, the difference between the guy that ends up building a great ministry and building a brand new building and the guy that's still struggling to ever get out the gate, most of the time it's in the mind. The mind is the battlefield. If we think the right way, we'll reason the right way. If we reason the right way, we'll end up acting the right way. The book of Acts 26, Paul said this, talking to King Agrippa. He said, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. You know, you can think yourself happy or think yourself sad. I want to give you this quote. This is for somebody here that's been struggling a little bit. This quote is for you right here. Don't allow a painful season in your life to define your whole life. I don't know if you've ever been through one of those seasons where it just felt like the world was crumbling around you. Come on, it, it feels like it's going to be that way forever. But what the enemy doesn't want you to get a glimpse of, he doesn't want you to see what's on the other side if you refuse to define your whole life by that season that you're in. And I think part of the reason why we have such a tendency to do that today is that we live in such a right now society. We want everything right now. We want our popcorn right now. We want to pull up to the drive-thru and get greens right now. You can't get greens right now. I mean, you got to work with them greens. Come on, somebody. We want everything. We're used to getting it right now. I mean, we, we, we sit up in a movie theater. You hear a song on the screen that you like. I mean, all you got to do is pull your phone out, hit Shazam. It'll tell you what song it is, and you can hit another button right there and buy it from the Apple Store, the Google Play Store, and have that song on your phone before you leave out. Well, that's not the way it was when I grew up, man. When I grew up, if you were listening to the radio and you heard a song you liked, you couldn't Shazam it. You had to wait till Shamundi when the Shereka store opened back up. Right? And go Shabai it at the record store. Right? But because everything is so instantaneous, we struggle when we go through a tough season. And sometimes, watch this, we forget how good God has already been to us. Can I just 
just tell you, God has already been good to you. If he never did anything else for you the rest of your life, God is worthy of all the praise you could give him with every breath in your body for the rest of your days. But we have a tendency to forget that the moment we get into a tough season where it looks like things aren't working out. And all depression starts off with a bad thought, a rogue thought, a thought that goes unchecked. We, we hear, we, our minds tell us a, a thought like, well, you're never going to get married. Everybody else has gotten married before you. They don't like me. Nobody else cares about me. But this is the real, the real kicker. Nobody would miss me if I was gone. That's a lie from the pit of hell. But it all starts, starts off by a thought. I mean, can I just teach you a lesson? Give me two minutes to teach you a lesson right here. Every thought that comes to your mind is not your thought. Every thought that comes to your head is not your thought. Just because a thought comes to your mind doesn't mean it's your thought. The devil is not all-knowing. He cannot read your mind. But he does have access to the soulish or the mental realm. He can inject a thought to see how you're going to respond to it. I'll give you biblical proof of that. You remember when Jesus had just come from fasting and praying? The book of Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4. The Bible says, when he had finished his time of fasting, the tempter came to him. And the tempter said these words, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jesus quoted the word. If you are the son of God, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all authority of all this territory. He quoted the word. But there's another one that sometimes we forget. The Bible says the tempter took him up to the pinnacle of the temple. Not on the first step or the third step. The highest point of the temple. And had him look over and says, cast yourself down. You know what that is? That's a suicidal thought. No different than when Jesus went in Mark chapter 5 to cast out the devils from the madman of Gadara. And the Bible says the demon said, don't cast us out, but send us into these pigs. And the Bible says the pigs over there chilling. They weren't bothering nobody. They just chilling doing pig stuff. Right? Just thanking God that I'm not bacon. Thanking God I'm not pork chops. I'm just chilling out here in the grass. Mine, they ain't, ain't bothering nobody. But the moment, watch this, that Jesus cast the devil out of this guy and sends the devil into these pigs. Watch this. The Bible says the pigs took off and ran violently over a cliff and killed themselves in the ocean. Where did the thought come from? Where did the, where did you, where did the idea come from to cast yourself off the temple, Jesus? The Bible says the tempter is the one that said to him. Now, watch this. This is why I want you to get this. How did he say that to him? If we go back to the book of Genesis chapter 3, when Satan, the serpent, started talking to Adam and Eve, we know how he talked to them. He literally possessed the body of a snake. I believe rose up on his tail and was talking to Adam and Eve in that way. But how about this in Mark and Matthew 4 and Luke 4, when Jesus is being talked to by the tempter? The Bible doesn't say that he possessed the body of a snake again, or that he possessed the body of a camel or a lion so how did the tempter say to Jesus, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself over? You know how he did it? He put a thought in his mind. If, you, if, if you're really the son of God, prove it. Jump, jump off. Now, not the second stair. Go to the highest point of the temple. Go ahead and jump off and see if his angels will protect you like he said. You know what that is? That's a suicidal thought. You know, when a thought comes to your mind, they wouldn't miss me. It'd be easier for everybody if I wasn't here. That's not your thought, sweetheart. The first law of human nature is self-preservation. 
That means if, if I'm going to protect anybody, I'm going to protect me. I'm not going to hurt myself. That's why you see these survivor movies, man. I mean, we're the best of friends, but we get out here on these water, man. I'm, I'm going to eat his leg before I just drink, go ahead and die. I don't mean to, but that's just human nature. Come on, somebody. I want you to all of I let him still be able to come up in here and preach a little bit. <laughs> but the first law of human nature is self-preservation. So for me to ever get to the place where I'm willing to hurt myself, that's not your thought. That's a thought coming from, that's the tempter trying to see how you respond. We've got to clean up the stinking thinking. And then the last thing that we've got to do, number four, we've got to practice God's presence and learn how to abide in his joy. Practice God's presence and learn how to abide in his joy. I quoted this verse earlier for you. It says, you will show me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. We got to practice God's presence. That means learning how to remind yourself every single day that the Lord is with you. That means everywhere you go, God is never leaving you. He's never forsaken you. He's with you every step of the way. You say, but what happens, pastor, if I get to the place where I get some bad news? Because I don't care how much you love God and how committed you are, there's still the potential for bad news to show up at times. And what we got to learn how to do is recognize bad news will show up, but it doesn't have to wipe us out. If I can get somebody to play for me, thank you. When bad news shows up, what do I do? We do exactly what the Bible says. God wrote it ahead of time. He said in James chapter 1, when bad news shows up, count it all joy. That means act like it's joy when it's really not joy. If I were to go into my wallet right now and write you a check for $5,000. See that? You know, but no, that, that's not counting your joy. That's just thinking about it, right? You don't have to count that joy. If I were to give you a check right now for $5,000, $10,000, you could do with it whatever you want to do. How many of you would be dancing, be shouting, you'd be posting on your Instagram or social media page? You don't have to count it joy when it is joy. You have to count it joy when you get information that makes you want to crawl up in the bed and cry. You have to count it joy when you get a report that makes you go, why would God let this happen to me? The Bible says, act like it's joy when it's not joy. Watch this, and God will turn it into joy. I'll close with this. Years ago, my wife and I were on vacation. We had just vacationed for the first time, I think, with the two of us. No kids with us this time. And we're out in Destin, Florida, Panama Beach area. We had just gotten there, man. We're ready for five days, whatever it was, just hanging out, the two of us. So we go to this restaurant, a little, it's like a Subway or Quiznos or something to grab a sandwich. And as we're walking in the door, she gets a call. And I can tell that from her facial disposition that it's bad news. Her whole countenance changed. So we're excited about being on vacation. All of a sudden, her countenance changed. She gets off the phone, and somebody from back home, her siblings or parents or somebody, and they've just shared with her some bad news. And her whole mood changed. Well, now, I'm asking her. I got to ask her a question. So she tells me what they said. I say, what are we going to do about it, baby? And I mean, when you first get some bad news, last thing you want to have is Mr. Happy coming around. (laughs) Miss, I got a scripture, right? I'm like, so so what are you going to do about it? She said, yeah, I know, I know. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. (laughs) So right there in the restaurant, true story, right there in the restaurant, I was like, no, that's not good enough. We got to count it joy. I took off and I started running in the restaurant. 
I run past the cash register. People are looking at me like, this dude has got to be out of his mind. And I make my way back around to where my wife is. When I show up to her, she's got this look on her face like, thou fool. <laughs> Did you really just do that? I said, come on, baby, what, what, what are we going to do about it? You know, the Bible says we got to count our joy. She said, yeah, I know, I know. So then she does a religious thing. She lifts her one hand. I know, praise the Lord. I said, no, that's not good enough. Now take off again. And I'm talking full speed in the restaurant. Running past the cash register. People are now starting to look at me. People are starting to get out their cell phone like, oh, we got a live one here. <laughs> and I come back around now, and April's standing there like, boy, if you don't, if you, boy, if you don't stop embarrassing me here, I say, boo, what are we going to do? We can't, because we cannot just let this thing get the best of us. So she puts up both hands, but still barely getting into it. I know, praise God. And I took off a third time. <laughs> And I ran a third lap in this restaurant. By this time, I came back around, and I think she did it just to keep me from running, but now she's praising the Lord. The Lord is good. But I knew right there in that instance, if I didn't do this, we have a tendency, we know a lot. It's not enough to know it, but don't do it. Watch this. And it's not enough to do it at church and forget it when you get home. question is, when you get home today and the enemy tempts you, what you going to do about the situation? Nothing working out for you. Everybody else is doing great except you. You got to get rid of that stinking thinking. Find your crew. Get them around you. Make a decision. Get over into the presence of the Lord and praise God like everything just worked out like it's supposed to. In fact, I want to challenge you for the next 20 seconds right here. Stand up with me and praise God as if everything just worked out the way you wanted to. teenager. I'm not saying it's going to happen. In fact, I pray with all my heart it doesn't happen. But the reality is life is like a vapor, man. If you were to walk out of here right now and your feet hit the pavement out here in the parking lot and you breathe in your last breath, do you know where you go? I'm not talking about where would your body go.